Hebrews chapter 3 is where we're at, so if you have a Bible, please open there, or the text will be on the screen a little bit. Hebrews chapter 3 will continue this morning. Warning signs and warning labels are everywhere. We see them every day on products or signs. Here's a sampling of these. One of my very favorites, if you can't read that first one, danger. Do not hold the wrong end of a chainsaw. One of my very favorites there. Probably shouldn't own a chainsaw if you need that warning, but um, lots of signs, right? We see them all the time on products, and we see them posted all over. They are met to get our attention, right? They're written in those kind of bold letters and colors. They're meant to get our attention so we avoid danger or we avoid death even. And what does, what does a wise person do when they read the warning sign? They heed the warning, right? They take it seriously. They don't say, well, I think I'll try that anyway. They don't ignore the warning. They are there for our protection. They're there for keeping us safe. We see them all the time. The Bible contains warning labels. Did you know that? As you read the Bible, there are warning labels. Danger. Don't do this. Warning. This leads to death. There are warnings and warning labels, and particularly in the book of Hebrews. The letter we're studying contains Warnings to Christians of a much more serious nature than even holding the wrong end of a chainsaw. These are weighty warnings, some of them warn of eternal danger. And I'm going to argue this morning that Christians are those who heed the warnings of Scripture. They're written for us. So Hebrews 3, we are in this section of God's Word. Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 is the first extended warning of the letter. The author gave a brief warning, a brief warning in chapter 2, and warned us not to neglect this great salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation? So he kind of dropped a short warning there in chapter 2, but now he extends this warning, and he does so by drawing the example of God's people in the wilderness led by Moses and what happened to them. The danger of unbelief. That's what I've entitled this section of God's Word, and actually we've looked at it for three Sundays now, this portion of Hebrews unfolding what is here. The danger of unbelief. There's the warning label that we find in the Bible, and it comes with an example. Look back to God's people and what happened to them. Don't repeat that. Danger, the danger of unbelief. I'm going to read this one more time for us this morning so we have it all in front of us. So, starting in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, this is where he begins to extend this 
warning and exhortation to us. And I'm going to read all the way through again, chapter 3, but I'm also going to read the first verse of chapter 4. So I'm just going to dip in to chapter 4. We'll begin to see that more next time, but I want us to hear it because he kind of rounds off this warning language. So follow with me in your Bible or on the screen as I read Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care. You could say, beware, brethren, brothers and sisters, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who rebelled when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses... And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, let us fear. Lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to come short of it. You hear it? The danger of unbelief. So we have seen over these three weeks that the author uses the example of the Exodus generation. That is that generation that was led out of Egypt by Moses, went to Mount Sinai, received that great revelation, and then went into the wilderness toward the promised land. He uses the example of the Exodus generation under Moses, and he applies it through the lens of Psalm 95. That's the scripture he's quoting specifically, Psalm 95. He applies the events of Numbers 14 through the lens of Psalm 95, and he applies it to us, to the church. And we have seen especially last week, how sobering and powerful an example that is. That that entire generation who came out of Egypt, that entire adult generation, died in unbelief under God's judgment in the wilderness. What a sobering example. And he's using that saying, watch out. And so he quotes Psalm 95, and he's telling us to hold fast to Christ. We, we mustn't do that. We must continue to hold fast. So after quoting Psalm 95, he gets right to his warning, and that's verse 12. That's the label. Danger. Beware. Beware, brothers and sisters, is what he's saying. Lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in doing the same thing, falling away from the living God. Encourage one another, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You hear the, the warning language, beware, be on guard, take heed. 
4, verse 14, we become partakers if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. The necessity of persevering to the end in faith. And he gave and he drew out, we saw last week, the power of that example from the wilderness generation. And then chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to continue now where he says, Let us fear, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to come short of it. It's danger. There in chapter 4, he's now picking up on this idea of rest and what it means to enter God's rest, what God's rest means. And we will develop that in, uh, after the new year, uh, that section of Hebrews 4. But this morning, as I promised, I've been promising the last couple of weeks, this morning we're just stop here. We're just going to take a step back now and ask this question. This question, I gave the, sorry, on the screen there, meant to give you the, the main takeaway from uh, this. Avoid the unbelief of the people of God in the wilderness who failed to enter his rest. That, we've been seeing that. That's the main takeaway, right? Avoid, avoid the unbelief of the people of God in the wilderness who failed to enter his rest. We must hold fast to Christ. That's, that's the main thing that we have seen. Now, here's the question that I said we would entertain here and try to answer because many of you have this question. It's a great, it's a very good question. How should we as Christians understand and apply these warnings, these warnings that are against final apostasy? That's what he's warning, I believe. That's what he's warning against by final apostasy Apostasy is the word he uses in verse 12 for falling away from the living God. He means falling away in final unbelief under the judgment of God. Falling away, being lost. How should we as Christians understand and apply these warnings against this unbelief, this final apostasy? I said we'd take that up, and that's what we're going to do now, because it's a difficult question. And it's a difficult question, and we will continue to, to develop this through Hebrews, because we're not done with the warning labels. We're not done with the warning passages. There are at least three more extended warnings in Hebrews, and they get more severe as we go. So we will take them in turn, each on their own context, on their own terms, and we will develop them. So what I'm going to offer you this morning, I will call a preliminary conclusion. I reserve the right to change and hopefully grow in my understanding here, but I want to give us some orientation of how it is we should understand these warnings. Now, over these past three Sundays, or the three Sundays we looked at this text, I, I've attempted to faithfully as I could explain this passage on its own terms. You've heard some of that, and you've heard the warnings. And I've tried to do that without an undue influence of my own theological framework, of not too quickly imposing that here. That, that's always the first task of a pastor or Bible teacher or interpreter or expositor is to take the text on its own terms in its context and try to understand it. But at some point, we must bring our theology to bear on any given text of Scripture. We must do that because we believe the Bible is one book. 
by one author. And we believe in that very simple, basic hermeneutic or rule of interpretation that Scripture interprets Scripture. It doesn't contradict itself. Scripture is consistent. So the book of Hebrews is not going to contradict the book of Romans or the book of John or any other book of the Bible. So we must bring to bear our theological framework and understanding from all of Scripture to any text of Scripture. That's the role of systematic theology, if you will, of bringing these things together. And so that's a little bit what we're doing this morning. Having looked at the text in its own terms, in its context, now trying to bring to bear a theology of the Bible. And so as we do that, the reason these are difficult questions, because these questions, the question I'm asking here surrounds our security in Christ, our assurance as Christians, the question of losing your salvation. That's what's at issue in this difficult question. So a little bit different this morning, what I'm going to do here under this heading, the warning of Hebrews, three views. <laughs> I'm going to just invite you to step into the classroom here for a moment. This is a little bit less sermon, a little bit more classroom style lecture. I want to ask you to think with me through these kind of views because there are different views of how we understand Hebrews. So a little bit more lecture style. Sorry, college students, you thought you were done with classes, but we're going to have a little class here this morning. But then we'll get back to preaching here at the end. I'll, I'll try to bring out the implications of this. But I want to give you some orientation. These are important issues. Three views I'm going to give you. There are other views, if you can believe it. And I'm not going to, I don't have time for all of those views. There are other views, especially the view, I, I referenced it briefly last Sunday. There is a view that says all that's in view here is the loss of rewards, not eternal judgment. So all that's being threatened here is either the temporal judgment or the loss of rewards. That is a view that some hold. I'm not going to, I just don't have time to try to dissect that view. I just said last week, I find that to be highly implausible through Hebrews. And I tried to say that last week. What he has in view here is final apostasy, the, the danger of God's judgment of not entering his final rest. So, so that's a view, but I'm not going to entertain. I'm going to give you first, I'm going to give you the two most common views of how we understand the, the warnings of Hebrews. And then I'm going to offer you a third view that I will subscribe to this morning that, at least for now, I think does the best with the text, these difficult issues. So let me give you, start with the first view. The first view, I'm, just, I'm going to label each of these. Number one, the loss of salvation view. The loss of salvation view, which is historically the Arminian, if you're familiar with these terms, you're not, don't even worry about them, the Arminian or Wesleyan kind of view of these warnings. What does this view teach? So I'll give you a summary of each one of these views, and then I'll tell you who they think the warnings are addressed to. So here's the summary. True believers may renounce and abandon the salvation they once had. That's, that's what this view, that's what these warnings. True believers, those born of the Spirit, those justified by faith, those believers, true believers, may renounce and abandon their salvation, the salvation they once had. This is true apostasy. That is, genuine believers, through neglect, through sin, 
may fall away in final unbelief and be lost. Loss of salvation. They really had it, and they lost it through unbelief. In this view, second note, the warnings, these warnings are addressed to Christians. The result of not heeding the warning, <laughs> the result of not heeding the warning is a loss of salvation or eternal life. So that's this view. It's addressed to Christians, and if you don't heed the warning, the danger here is the loss of salvation, the loss of eternal life. Now, the strength of this view, and it's the most common view, by the way. The strength of this view is that it's a very straightforward reading of the text, right? What he seems to say. Very straightforward reading of the text. If, if he warns Christians about unbelief and falling away, then it must be possible, this view argues. Why else would he warn us? Right? That's the logic of this view. You can see that. So that's the strength of this view. The weakness, to me, the fatal weakness of this view is that it must deny the eternal security of the Christian, of the believer, or we would call it the perseverance of the saints, which is promised repeatedly in the Bible. So the fate, in my mind, the fatal weakness of this view is it has to re-explain all of those, I think, are very clear text about the security of the believer or the final perseverance of Christians, of saints in the faith. So let me just tip my hand here. Let's put my cards out, right? I believe unequivocally in the doctrine of eternal security. I believe unequivocally in the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. I am reformed when it comes to the issues of salvation, proudly so, unashamedly so. I have taught and defended elsewhere, so I'm not going to do that this morning, uh, this truth, this doctrine from many texts. So I'm unashamedly reformed. I believe in the P of TULIP, if you know the acronym, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just tune in later. Uh, <laughs> I believe in the P there, the perseverance of the saints. I believe that with all my heart, the Bible teaches that. So I have tried to defend that in many places elsewhere. I'm not going to defend it except to give you one text, because I can't resist Romans chapter 8. <laughs> After all, we looked at this text as a grand text, that really the pinnacle of the book of Romans, uh, that rehearses our security. So let me put that on the screen. If you want one text, there's so many texts, but here's a great one that we looked at. Romans chapter 8, starting verse 29. Actually, verse 28 is such a well-loved verse that we thought on. Remember verse 28 of Romans? Not on the screen, but he says, we know that all things work together for good. All things work together for good to those who love God. There's nothing, nothing that's going to work against you to separate you from Christ ultimately. So anyway, I'm not going to re-preach Romans, I promise. But let me, let me just read it because just enjoy this. For whom, here's his grounds for that great truth that we love. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, 
These he also glorified. That's called the golden chain of salvation. No one falls out of that. Everyone that God predestined and called and justified is glorified. Not half. So, and then skip down to the end of that chapter where he just, it's just this crescendo of Romans 8. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You you cannot say it more comprehensively than that. Nothing. Nothing. So, secure. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who is greater than all, has given them to me and no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. Oh, it's just, we can multiply text. I promised I wouldn't do that. So, so let's go back, go back to the outline here. That to me is the fatal flaw of this view. While it has a straightforward reading of Hebrews, In many ways, it just neglects this greater truth. Number two, the response here. The evidence of salvation view. The first is the loss of salvation. The evidence of salvation view. This is the classic Reformed view. So that was a kind of classic Arminian Wesleyan view. This is the classic kind of Reformed view. Here's Here's the summary. True believers will persevere in faith as evidence of their genuine salvation. Those who fall away, at least appear to fall away, were never truly believers in the first place. They only appeared to be so. The lack of perseverance reveals the reality of their being not a Christian. So this is this view. True believers will persevere in faith. And that is the evidence of their genuine salvation. And if any would seem to make a good start and then fall away, it reveals they were not believers in the first place. Now, that statement as it stands, I believe. I do. I believe that statement as it stands there in its own terms. That true believers, I just argued that they persevere in the faith. So if there's not a perseverance, there's not a reality of salvation. So I believe that first statement. I'm going to tell you in just a moment why I disagree with this view ultimately. But where, where, do, they, where do they get this, this, this statement? Well, look with me at chapter 3. We, we've been over these verses, but look back with me at chapter 3, verse 14, and notice these conditional statements. Verse 6 and verse 14 are very similar. And these are conditional statements, but they're written in a very unique way. And the tenses of the verb are made much of in this view. He says in verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ. He uses this perfect tense. It means we, we, we become and we currently are partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So the argument is, what he is saying here is that the holding fast is the evidence that you're a partaker of Christ. We are partakers if we hold fast. We have become partakers if we hold fast. How do you know you're a partaker? You hold fast to Christ. Do you see that? It's the evidence 
of the inference that we are partakers in Christ. That's how this conditional statement is understood. And so they, they would argue that, the, just, just think of the reverse of that. If someone doesn't hold fast, what's it mean? They didn't become a partaker. Doesn't mean they lost it. Means they never were. They didn't become a partaker. So that's, that's where this argument has come from. So I agree with that as it stands. Where else do they, they get this? Well, this, the, the larger example we've been looking at, we looked at the example of Israel in the wilderness, remember last Sunday? And so this view would say, look, look at Israel, that's the example he's using, they were outwardly part of the people of God, right? They were outwardly, looked like they were part of the people of God, but their unbelief proved they weren't. They didn't injure the rest. So there's the example. There may be people that have an appearance, but in the end, because of their lack of perseverance, they're, they're not the people of God, they're un. Believing. So, so far so good. Who are the warnings addressed to then? Here's the second part of this view. The warnings are addressed to a mixed audience. By mixed, I mean Christian and non-Christian. And they warn those who may not truly be Christians. The warnings are a call for self-examination to see whether you're a Christian. That's this view. So the warnings... So this view is saying, listen, the writer, he's just addressing the church and he's doing it in generous terms. He just calls them brethren. Chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers and sisters. Yeah, yeah, he's just he's speaking in very, but he knows that in any church there's a mixed audience. There will be some in that congregation who are not believers. So the warnings, so these warnings that pop up are for those people. They're for non-Christians. They're for those who are not Believers, maybe they think they're believers. They're almost Christians. They've come a certain way, but not all the way. Or they're pretending to be Christians. Or they're just deceived. They're disingenuine Christians. And that's who the warnings are for. That's this view. Now, I think that second statement is the fatal weakness of this view, personally. As I read the book of Hebrews, and we'll continue to read it, I think it stretches credibility to say that these warnings are not addressed to and do not apply to believers. Because that's what this view is saying. These, these aren't written to you, Christian. These are written to those who aren't Christian or think they are, but they're not. I think that stretches credibility because this entire letter he is writing to believers. Yes, there may be some of the mixed audience, but, but to say that these extensive warnings that he is just now saying now to you who may not be Christians, I'm writing to you. No, he's, I think he's writing to Christians. Again, just look at our context. We've seen this. Chapter 3, verse 1, how he starts this. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling. And that's Christians. He's assuming that. Again, verse 12 Remember when we saw this? He says, take care, brothers and sisters. Favorite word for Christians. We belong to the family. And then he, then he said, remember how he said it? Lest there be in any one of you. He's not saying, unless there be a, some exceptions, unless there be a few of you. Lest there be, he's warning everyone. There's no exemptions. Any one of you, he keeps using that language, any one of you, verse 13, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, any one of you, he's applying it directly 
to us. So I, th- I just think that's the weakness of this view. The pract- I'll, I'll, you want, to me, the practical or pragmatic weakness of this view is that this view, as it's taught, and I've heard it taught multiple times, is its tendency to undermine the genuine assurance of believers by emphasizing this call to self-examination to see whether you really are a Christian or not. Because you may think you are, you may have all, but you might not be. And that the effect of that often is to undermine genuine assurance of Christians by making us ask questions like, well, am I trusting enough? Have I done enough? Have I sinned too much? Maybe I'm not. I think that's a bad effect of this view. The author, what I'm impressed with here, is the author doesn't write these warnings to provoke the readers to question whether they are true believers. He writes to encourage us to keep following Jesus. That's the purpose. So So what shall we do? Well, of course, there's a third view, (laughs) as you might guess. The third view, and this is the one I'm just going to argue for in the book of Hebrews and continue to refine, so I'm just going to give it to you here this morning and we'll draw some implications. The third view is the means of salvation view. So I titled it Reform 2.0. It's still still a reformed view, but uh, slightly different. Maybe not as common as the view I just gave, but still uh, reformed in that sense, not an Arminian view of losing salvation, just not as widely held, but I... I'm compelled by it. What's the summary of this view? Warnings are one of the primary means God uses to preserve believers from falling away. Warnings are a means God uses to preserve us from falling away. So the warnings in the book of Hebrews, as we read them, they are all prospective. That is, they are giving the real consequences for unbelief. They're not retrospect. They're not looking back and saying, this is what some of you have done. Some of you have done this and fall away. No, they're just warning about the real consequences of unbelief. And those warnings are a means to keep us from falling away. So who are the warnings addressed to in this view? The warnings are addressed to believers. And believers will heed the warnings and avoid a hard heart of unbelief. The warnings are addressed to brothers and sisters and to all of us. And believers heed the warnings. They hear God's voice in the warnings. And they avoid a heart of unbelief. It's God's means to preserve us. One of his means, not the only. One of his means to preserve us from falling away in unbelief. And these warnings are always effective in the lives of God's people, in the lives of his elect, in the lives of Christians. We respond. Now, that's the summary. What's the, what's the weakness here? What's the criticism of this view? Well, you could probably feel it. The main criticism of this view is, is the criticism that says, well, if you think believers can't ultimately fall away, then these warnings are useless or they're superfluous. 
They're pointless. If that can't happen, why warn against it? Right? So that, you feel that, right? That's the argument. Again, all these views have their weaknesses. I get it. But I, I just want to respond to that criticism just for a moment here. Because I, I think that criticism fails to distinguish something that's really, really, really important in the Bible. And that's the distinction between ends and means. Ends and means. As we wrestle with the big questions of God's sovereignty, we teach here often God's sovereignty over all things and His plan being worked out and His purposing from the foundation of the earth, God's sovereignty, and we wrestle with that and the issue of man's responsibility and man's choices, right, that age-old, ongoing dilemma and problem we, we struggle with, one of the most helpful things for me has been understanding the difference between ends and means, so that, to me, it is not biblical to say that the means are pointless or unnecessary if the end is certain. So people make that argument, well, if you already know the end, what's the point? That misses the Bible's emphasis on means are necessary to the end. God appoints ends and he appoints means to the end. And means in the Bible are absolutely necessary to the end. Otherwise, we just have fatalism. Whatever will be, will be. That's fatalism. That's not biblical Christianity. Yes, we believe what will be, what will be, because God has ordained it. And he is good. But there is means to that end that are real that he has appointed. So let me, let me just try to illustrate this, some examples from, from the Bible for you. Again, we believe, the Bible teaches, God has chosen those he will save from, from eternity. God's great. We just read it in Romans 8, this predestining, this choosing. However, we must still repent and believe to be saved. You have to repent and believe to be saved. You don't just throw up your hands and say, well, God, sure, I guess it doesn't matter. It matters. We must, we must preach the gospel for people to be saved. We must. That's the, God has said that. It's a command of the Bible. Don't be wiser than God and say, well, he's, he's elected, he's anointed, it's just going to happen. No, the means are necessary. So he appoints the means, and we give ourselves to the means. Why do we make so much about preaching the gospel and missions to hard places? Because we believe it's the means that God uses. We don't negate the means because we believe God is sovereign and the ends are settled. Means must be present for the end to be obtained. Here's another one. I'm often asked this. It's a really good question. If you believe that, if you believe God is sovereign and he, he orchestrates and works all things after the counsel of his will and determines, why pray? Why pray? He's just going to do it, isn't he? No. Not apart from prayer. <laughs> pray. Because it's the means to God's ends. It's real. We, we learned a couple weeks ago from the book of James, chapter 5 that the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. We believe that. Absolutely. We pray because it's the means God has appointed. We give ourselves. So 
we see many examples of that in the Bible, and I'm arguing that the same pattern of means and ends applies to perseverance. God promises to keep us. God promises to preserve us, that no one will snatch us out of His hand, that nothing will separate us from His love. And the warnings are one of the means God uses to preserve us. He, he, he's just writing to us as human beings because we can conceive of the consequences of unbelief. And he's using that as motivation to keep believing. Dr. Tom Schreiner, in his uh, little book on perseverance, Run to Win, Run to Win the Prize, it's a book on perseverance, he just noted, I thought was a pretty interesting example in the Bible that I remember when we went through the book of Acts, we saw. This was in Acts chapter 27. Paul's on the ship, remember, trying to head to Rome, and that great storm rises up. Remember that whole story? And it's a raging storm. It looks like all of them are going to die, and God comes in the night and promises through an angel to Paul that every person on the ship, all 276 of them, would live. No one would be lost. You remember that story? Then a little bit later, the soldiers are getting worried, and so they're trying to escape the ship. Remember that? Putting down the boats, and Paul comes, and he warns them. And he says to the, to the guy in charge, unless these men remain, you yourselves cannot be saved. Isn't that interesting? Well, if God just promised you that no one's going to be lost, why are you warning them? Because it's the means. It's the means. Paul believed the warnings was one of the means by which the promise would come to pass, right? It's common sense. Don't jump off the boat or you'll be lost. That's the warnings in the Bible. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, held this view that I'm articulating and other folks in history. He comments this. He's actually commenting on Hebrews chapter 6. We'll get to the most difficult of these texts sometime. Hebrews chapter 6. Be a while. We'll get there. Here's Spurgeon. But, says one, you say, Spurgeon, you say they cannot fall away. What is the use of putting this if in like a bugbear to frighten children or like a ghost that can have no existence? My learned friend, who art thou that repliest against God? If God has put it in, he's put it in for wise reasons, for excellent purposes. Let me show you why. First, O Christian, it is put in to keep you from falling away. God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these is the terrors of the law, showing them that what would happen if they were to fall away. There is a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why? To tell them that if he should... If he goes down there, he would be inevitably dashed to pieces. In some old castle, there is a deep cellar where there is a vast amount of mixed air and gases, which would kill anybody who went down. What does the guide say? If you go down, you will never come up alive. Who thinks of going down? The very fact that the guide telling us what the consequences would be keeps us from it. Our friend puts away from us a cup of arsenic. He does not want us to drink it, but he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we should drink it? No. He tells us the consequences, and he is sure that we will not do it. So God says, my child, 
If you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution, because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed. And he stands far away from that great gulf, because he knows that if he were to fall into it there, there would be no salvation for him. That's the warning signs. What do believers do? They heed the warnings. It's God's means. It's his gracious means. So I promise, let me move from the classroom here for a moment and end with uh, implications. And I want to do it under this, this heading, just quickly, a call to perseverance. So what, whatever the view. Now, that's new. Just, just wrestle with those. We'll continue to wrestle as we go through the book of Hebrews. You may not agree with me. That's fine. Wrestle with the Bible and how you understand these. So wherever we come, whatever the view for a moment here, the main takeaway from this portion of Hebrews is the necessity of perseverance. In fact, all three views would agree to that, that we must persevere in faith to be saved. So knowing that, that's the main, a call to perseverance. How now... With what I just argued, that these, I believe, these warnings are written to Christians. And yet we believe, I believe, that we cannot ultimately be lost. How should we respond? How should we respond to these warnings? Let me give you three. Number one, and this is the most obvious, heed the warnings. (laughs) Heed the warning. Use the means prescribed to avoid a heart, a hard heart of unbelief. See them as written to you and heed them. Don't ignore the warnings. Don't ignore them because you are a Christian and say, well, they don't apply to me. I'm a Christian, can't be lost. Heed the warnings. As I said, don't be wiser than God. (laughs) They're in here for his purposes as a means. So apply ourselves to the warning. Don't say they don't apply to me. These are God's gracious means. This is God's warning label to us to keep us from drinking the arsenic. We continually, aren't we called to continually fight the fight of faith? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So heed it. What, what, is, what do I mean when I say the prescribed means? What, the things we've seen. What are these means? There's many means But what we've seen, it includes watching over the heart for unbelief. Watching over our heart, putting sin to death, repentance as we sin. We all do. This is not a call to perfection. We sin. We sin every day. We don't trust God at times. And as he exposes that, repent. Repent. That's the heart of a believer. And we saw in verse 13 of chapter 3, mutual exhortation. Encourage one another so that you're not hardened. Take that seriously. That's vital. This is God saying. You need that. That's the means. That's the means to keep us from a hard heart is mutual exhortation. So I just say again, thank you for being here. Thank you. I mean that with all sincerity. How vital to be together under God's word. Don't. Don't neglect the means. So heed the warnings. 
this mutual exhortation. Now, as, as you do that, here's my caution. <laughs> I have caution here. This is, this is not falling into some works righteousness where we have to prove to God that we really are believers. That we have to do enough. No, by remember, the, the warnings are to keep us trusting in Christ, in the gospel. The same way we are saved, right? Any obedience or good works is, is the fruit of the faith. It's not the means to acceptance by God. So just be careful there. It is a call to continue to trust Christ. So that's one, heed the warnings. Number two, grow in gospel assurance. As you hold fast to Christ, know that God is keeping you, is preserving you. Grow in gospel assurance. I think that's the thing that's often lacking here with these warnings. Christian, as you heed these warnings, as you hear God's voice and you say, I, I'm going to give attention to my heart and I, I'm going to assemble with the saints and encourage one another. As you heed these warnings, take great assurance. Believers respond to the warnings. Take assurance. I, I just think the Lord wants us to live in the full assurance of faith. Do you know where that phrase comes from? Hebrews chapter 10. We'll see all the assurances that the writer of Hebrew gives, even with warnings. It's just not healthy to continue this morbid kind of introspection. I don't know if I'm a believer. I wonder if I'm a believer. Did I do enough? I wonder. It's not where we should be living. Oh, there's times for a real examination. That's not the point of the warnings. I'll say it again. This is why I disagree with that second view. Warnings are not written so that believers will just continually ask whether they are Christians. It's not written to cause us to doubt with this unhealthy introspection. They are written so that we continue to exercise faith. So these aren't written to undermine a genuine assurance. We're to walk in that genuine assurance. Again, he's, what's he warning against? He's not just a warning. Some of you, some of you may have all the marks and really think, but you may not be. What he's warning against is apostasy, which is really obvious to people who reject the gospel. But having said that, let me finish. Number three, yet beware of false assurance. Grow in gospel assurance as a Christian. Walk in that. But yes, beware of false assurance. If today you're not holding fast to Christ, repent and trust in Christ. These warnings are written primarily for believers. That's my argument as God's means of preserving us. They're written primarily for Christians, and yet they certainly do apply to those who are not Christians. And when I say beware of false assurance... Again, I don't mean that kind of wrong introspection that's always doubting my salvation and questioning because I, I sinned uh, seven times yesterday or I, I fell too much. And I, I don't mean that kind of thing that's unhealthy. By false assurance, I merely mean feeling safe, like these warnings don't apply, on grounds other than a present trust in Christ. That's the grounds for our assurance. 
Any other ground is sinking sand, the song says, right? What would some of those grounds? Well, if it's just your own goodness, I'm a pretty good person. Ah, these warnings don't apply. I'm pretty good. That's, that's a false assurance. It's your present trust in Christ. Or, as I've mentioned already in this study, just a past decision. A belief way back there. When I prayed to receive Christ, when I was baptized, and yet there's no present affection for Christ. There's no present trust and treasuring of Christ. And you just feel safe because, well, I did that. You see salvation as a vaccination. To use a current analogy, a vaccination, I got that, never thought about it again. Salvation is not a vaccination, it's a present, ongoing trust in Christ. So today, you hear it, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Are you presently trusting and clinging to Christ alone? If you're not, today, 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 come to Christ. If you are, take great assurance. And may God use these to preserve us. Let me pray for us as we finish. Oh, Father, these, these are hard things. Help us. Help us to understand your word and to apply it rightly. Oh, I do pray if any are without Christ, that today they would hear your voice and they would be trusting in you. If there's any with a false assurance, just resting on something way in the past or on their own goodness, Lord, bring conviction and repentance and bring them to Jesus. Cause us to cling to Christ and so walk in the full assurance of faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.